folks, welcome back to the MyTech Decisions Podcast. Multi-factor authentication can help protect against phishing attacks designed to steal user credentials and gain access into corporate systems, but now attackers are finding ways around that security control. Take Uber, for example, which was recently the victim of a highly publicized social engineering attack that includes repeated authentication attempts and creating a man-in-the-middle MFA portal that tricked the user into revealing their authentication credentials. To talk about this is Josh Yavor, the Chief Information Security Officer at cloud email security platform Tessian. According to Josh, social engineering is still working and is one method attackers are finding around multi-authentication tools. Before we get to Josh, here's a quick reminder that the podcast is available on iTunes, Google, and Spotify to hear weekly interviews with IT experts who can help you make the right decisions for your organization. And now here's Josh. Uh, we can talk about Uber. So, uh, Josh, um, I know you don't work for Uber, and I doubt you're on the front lines of investigating. But what does the general public uh, know about what happened at Uber? Yeah, I think it's a you know the first hours and days of events like this. Um, it's really important to remember that um, it is early, and these situations tend to evolve over time as we learn more. So, I think. Um, you know, as uh, uh, as difficult as it may be, sometimes patience is key um, to understanding things that are actually like useful to like broader audiences. And this is definitely one of those cases in my mind. I think the 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 main opportunity that we have um, when unfortunate events like this occur is to really step back and look beyond the specific event here and think about what are the industry uh, and, and global um, lessons learned that we can uh, think about and um, you know uh, best practices that we can reinforce. Right. Um, well, just based on you know what has been been published, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, you know, maybe, well, what lessons can we learn from this then if, you know, based on what's been published and what's out there? Yeah, and I think um, the, if you think back over the past, uh, even just the last few months, but especially the last, um, you know, couple of years, we see a theme in the publicly reported uh, breach events and uh, security incidents um, over, over that period of time where a few things are reinforced. The first theme is perhaps the most obvious, but it's worth uh, mentioning because it is the most predominant theme, which is that social engineering is almost always at the core Mm -hmm. of all of these breaches. And it starts with the uh, seemingly simple act of humans tricking other humans. Usually in these cases, it starts with uh, uh, some sort of phishing, whether that's through email, whether it's through social media, or um, increasingly, we're seeing uh, upticks in SMS-based phishing as well, in order to gain um, access to uh, credentials, passwords, right? But what's really noteworthy in the last couple of years is the increasing uh, frequency of um, bypasses of multi-factor authentication. And I think that's perhaps the most noteworthy takeaway for us to really focus on based off of um, this chain of events, Um, specifically because MFA is not new technology. It is and can be effective. But one of the key things that we have to reflect on is, are we using and deploying it correctly? And how can we increase our resiliency to these types of attacks that increasingly um, include bypasses to MFA um, in organizations that have it deployed. 
and and that was the case with with the with, with the Uber um, attack. And you know, what do you know about how they how this particular threat actor did bypass MFA? Yeah, we're we're still learning details, um, and I think uh, if you ask me again next week or the week after, uh, we might have a little bit more confidence in terms of you know knowing uh, all all the details. But um, from 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 what we know, it fits the profile I just described, right? Starts with social engineering of um, a, a target or a set of targets in an organization. Um, of course, it's always um, I. It's always a balance on the attacker side based off of their motivations. Sometimes we see attackers do a spray and pray attack where it's reaching out to many different companies, many different uh, people in different roles. In some cases, it's targeting individual roles within companies or one company itself. And um, regardless of the the, the, the targeting, um, the engagement methods that we, we continue to see remain um, pretty much the same. Um, I think that uh, you know the one that we're most familiar with in the security industry is perhaps email-based phishing, but um, I think it's the the reinforcement. Uh, or sorry, the reinforcement that I would add in here, based off of these recent trends, including the uh, the, the news about uh, Uber, is that um, while at work and from like a defender perspective, we um, we understandably focus on the corporate uh, domains that we we, uh, we we need to protect our corporate email, our corporate uh, messaging systems, and our devices. Um, and we, as employers and uh, internal security practitioners, we respect people's boundaries between work and life. We don't do things like monitor personal email or ask people to forward all of their LinkedIn messages to us, and so on. That would be really weird. But we also know that attackers don't respect these boundaries. And so we see upticks in attackers starting in one or more systems outside of the corporate uh, point of visibility and defense, whether that's in social media, whether it's in text messages or voice calls as well. And that's where we're seeing um, a lot of attacker behavior that starts in one or more of those systems, bounces around, sometimes goes through corporate email as part of that, um, but then ultimately um, ends with the same outcome, unfortunately, which is finding a way to sufficiently convince an employee that they should um, give up a password, give up a one-time passcode for MFA, or approve what is ultimately a fraudulent push from an attacker. Mm. Um, so in uh, Uber's case, it seems as if uh, the attacker had access to a wide range of internal tools um, in Uber's environment. So do we know anything about if um, uh, in you know internal IT person was first compromised? And I know that has also been um, probably more prevalent of late, the, the targeting it's of you know internal you know IT admins. Yeah, it's really hard to say in this case. Um, stepping back again, because this is just su su uh, such fresh information that's um, yeah. you know hours old. Um, like um, stepping back from this specific case, I will say that more broadly, um, there, there's a couple thoughts here. The first is yes, um, depending on the attacker motivations and um, you know what level of effort they're willing to put into selecting who they're going to target. Um, going after higher privileged, higher higher capabilities um, in terms of your your potential victims um, is absolutely something that we see. And it's not always folks like IT or security administrators, because most attackers um, are financially motivated. If you look at like where the most um, 
uh, attacker um, uh, efforts are focused, it's on financial gain. That's why business email compromise is one of the biggest threats that we see globally. It's because that's where the money is for attackers and attackers are financially motivated predominantly. There are hacktivists, there are uh, nation state threat actors and you know things like that, but the most frequent threats that we have to defend against are financially driven. And right. those higher privileged folks are actually different they're usually the folks who can use a corporate card, um, for example, that has a very high spend limit. It could be somebody who has the purchasing authority to pay a fraudulent invoice for a fake company um, and so on. And so I think, um, oh, and actually another good example that we've seen in the past couple of years is um, somebody who controls the ability to reroute uh, direct deposits, for example, uh, for payroll uh, to pay employees. There's plenty right. of fraud that occurs there. The last thing I'll say, and this is like the, the second main thought, is that one of the, the, the points of reflection that is always healthy for us in the security industry to, uh, uh, to, to pause and take advantage of is remembering that we are targets ourselves in the security and the IT space, and that even though we're often technically the most knowledgeable and situationally aware around like our threats and the risks that we face, we're not perfect we are potential victims ourselves. And if we allow for a false sense of confidence and bravado to build up, um, we actually put ourselves and the organizations that we should be protecting at higher risk. Now that's a more general statement. Um, and I think that's one of those things that's always true across all companies, across all industries, is that as security practitioners, one of the things that, that you know we, we just really have to um, be mindful of is that self-awareness um, as well to make sure that we're actually taking adequate precautions to protect ourselves and therefore to uh, increase the protection that we're providing for our organizations and those who count on us. Right. So how are threat actors now bypassing MFA, which we, you know, folks like yourself and others in the IT security industry have hailed as this, you know, this great tool that will prevent, you know, phishing and, and you know, most ransomware attacks. Um, you know, how, yeah, it's, how it, are, how, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. It's a great question. Um, it's, it's one of the most important ones here. Um, let me start with what the takeaway cannot be. The takeaway cannot be that MFA doesn't work and right. we should not try as hard. <laughs> That's the wrong takeaway. The, the correct takeaway is that over the past 10 plus years, organizations have been on a journey to deploy MFA as a critical um, layer of protection to address phishing and password compromise. We've made tremendous gains, but one thing I'll call out before I go even any further is that we're not even done with that journey. The number of organizations who have high privileged accounts that, um, that are, are, are and, and, even, and even just regular employee accounts that don't have MFA deployed at all across critical systems is still way too high. So we're not done with the, the broader um, uh, global rollout, so to speak, of MFA, and we can't lose sight of the need to close that gap. The second part is that we have to realize that not all MFA factors and deployments are created equal. If you think about MFA factors, people oftentimes think about um, code generators um, on their on their phone, the little six-digit you know codes that are generated. Back in the day, we had those little hardware fobs that we had our keychain, and the batteries died, and they got out of sync, and they were terrible. We've come a long way, but with those one-time passcodes, whether it's from a code generator, a key fob um, delivered via an SMS message, those are fishable. 
in the same way that an attacker can convince you to enter a password into a, a phishing website or to tell you uh, tell you their password or that code over the phone, um, that, 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 that's equally applicable to these one-time passcodes. We also have push notifications that uh, can provide you know, an, an approval opportunity and also voice callbacks. There are some technologies that will call a phone number and say, you know, press one if this is you, press nine if it's not. Um, it's basically the same, um, same process. Those can be generated by attacker behavior. Um, so if I have your password, for example, and I'm logging into a site that's protected by MFA and I can trigger a push to you, you receive that push and you might say, oh, you know what? This is my company's MFA provider. It's my the app I have on my phone. I trust it. I know it. It's annoying sometimes. I'm just going to hit accept. And then what you've actually done is let me in. So um, those are all fishable factors. They are attack. They can be attacker controlled or attacker generated at least. And we have not sufficiently addressed that as a risk um, across many, if not most, of our MFA deployments globally. The good news is that we have other factors that have emerged in the last few years. Um, years of improvements at the protocol level and at the hardware level as well have led to new factor types, um, uh, especially those that are FIDO2, which is a, uh, a technical protocol around um, these types of authenticators. But basically, they're things like Touch ID on uh, MacBooks and YubiKeys and other security keys. Um, mm -hmm. They support these protocols. And the key difference is that at a technical level, at the protocol level, they are out of the box resilient to, to, to much of the phishing threats that we see here. Yeah. Um, and any organization that has MFA deployed, which is too few still today and should be all, but that's another story. Um, the call to action as we look back at these events, um, you know, not just recent, but going back over the past few years, is that we need to address this capability gap. We need to focus on getting FIDO2 compliant um, uh, authentication factors out to our workforces. And at the same time, because you know push and one-time passcodes, they're not going away anytime soon. We also need to take advantage of defense in depth. Deploying secure access policies, having other controls in place is more critical now than it ever has been. Right. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, I mean, this this uh, person that infiltrated Uber is calling themselves a teenager. Um, who knows if they're telling the truth or not? But um, I mean, if if it is a teenager, then that means that um, uh, you know, more advanced you know nation state actors are definitely already doing are doing these things. Yeah, it's interesting. I um I I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I'm going to say it either way. Um, we um. There's a couple things. First, whether you're a nation state adversary, um, a uh, like an e-crime um, outfit, um, or a hacktivist, or you know a a, a child, um, what works works in terms of attacker methodology. And yeah. if there's one thing that we can always count on, is that attackers, big, small, individuals, large organizations, big budget, no budget, they'll always go first for what works and is cheap and reliable. And what we just talked about, social engineering via you know the factors or the methods that we talked about, using um, increasingly uh, available and easy to use attacker toolkits um, that set up phishing sites and set up um, automation for uh, MFA bypass for one-time passcodes and push like we talked about, 
um, those are so accessible now that all the attackers that we should be worried about, regardless of what kind they are and how like organized, well-funded, or how old they are, um, that really doesn't matter. They're all going to go for the most effective, low-cost um, attack uh, vectors, and this is it. <laughs> the second thing I'll say is that, um, wow, do we uh, uh, not give kids um, enough credit. Um, I taught middle school in my first career. <laughs> um, oh, wow. So I can tell you with firsthand experience that there are very few threat actors out there that have the technological know-how, because let's face it, um, you know, younger people generally um, have more consistent and broad knowledge of technology um, than older generations. And that's just the reality of, of, of yeah. life. And kids, whether they're like, you know, uh, you know, approaching adulthood or, you know, as we uh, saw in some of the reports about like the, the lapsus uh, group and attacks, you know, younger teenagers, um, regardless, they have motivation, they have know-how and they have time and energy. And so that is a combination that is highly capable. We should not underestimate kids because um, regardless of you know, whether they're like in middle school, high school, or you know, new adults, um, underestimating a potential adversary is always a recipe for, dis for disaster. Right. Um, and one last point, I mean, Uber is a gigantic company. I assume they spend a bunch of money on security. Um, but still, someone was able to get in by, by social engineering, uh, whoever it was. So what does this say about, yeah, you can, you know, throw, you know, all the money in the world at, you know, security uh, systems, but, but kind of what it comes down to is still awareness and training. I think what we have to remember is that it's not just about money. Like we talked about on the adversary side, it's also true on the defender side. Budgets matter. Don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a CISO, right? Like I will always ask for more budget. Uh, please give it to yeah. me. Yes, I will take it. But um, just as attackers always focus on the most economical and effective tools and uh, methodologies first, we as defenders do the same, honestly. And if we're not, then we, re we really should be. And so I think like when it comes to how we apply budgets, large and small, and apply technical know-how um, to our you know, uh, various levels of like complexity of environments, um, the most important things are to start with um, the basics. And I'm not, to be very clear, um, like tech, uh, technology providers like Uber, and um, if you look back at the last few years of um, you know, breach events and notifications, you know, none of these companies have like not invested in security. They all have, mm, yeah. they all have put investments in, they all hire smart people. They all um, are, are, are like, try, we're all trying to do the, the, the same things as defenders. What we have to keep coming back to as, as practitioners and as an industry is that we can't get, we, we, we have to focus on what is easy and cheap for the attack, the attackers, what are statistically the most likely ways that we will be attacked and compromised. And we just talked about like the predominant one in this discussion. Um, and that it's um, from there, it's balancing resources and prioritization. And I will tell, I'll, 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 I'll end uh, the stream of thought with this. One of the most dangerous things that we can do on the security practitioner side is let ourselves get distracted by the super complex, exciting and shiny, but like very rare, um, uh, you know, risks. 
and focus on those to a level that uh, does not reflect the, the likelihood of what will actually be compromised by. And again, that's not specific to any company. Every company can fall victim to that. But I think it's, it's you know, reflecting the same behavior back, as I said, that the attackers are showing. Focus on what works in terms of defense and focus on economics. Every step of the way, the more that we can make things more difficult for attackers, we know that that will shift their behavior. And that's that's the game that we're all playing here. And whether you're like, you know, whether you have like big, you know, uh, tech company uh, budgets or not, um, the way that you approach that is generally the same. And it's starting with uh, addressing, you know, uh, you know, the, the MFA configuration in particular that we talked about here today. That's the one thing I could pick for people to focus on. It's get your factories right and start working on defense in depth so that only devices that you're confident in um, are able to actually get through your authentication process. Right. So next time you see someone that works in IT or security in Uber, are you going to buy them a drink? You know what? There are like right now, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people, um, you know, at, at Uber who are working long hours, disrupting yeah. their plans and also, you know, addressing this risk with, um, you know, uh, all, all, all the people that like that, that rely on their organization um, top of mind. So in any situation like this, um, we all need to start with a point of like empathy, um, regardless yeah. of, you know, um, anything else, because real people are involved, um, you know, just like the, 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 the attackers on the, the other end, they're real humans, uh, the defenders are as well, and those who are uh, impacted by events like this. So um, my, uh, you know, my, my, my thoughts are with everyone who's impacted um, in, in all their forms, because yeah, I've been on the other side of this myself um, in terms of incident response situations. Um, you never want to be in these situations. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's it, one of the most critical things that we can do as a broader industry is, you know, not jump to conclusions, not speculate, give people space to do their jobs. And we'll figure out more about all the questions that we have later on. But right now it's about reducing risk and impact. Right. Very good. Um, Josh, thanks very much, man. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was fun. Awesome. Thank, Thank you both. You. Thanks, Jamie. Have a good weekend, guys. Bye. You too. You too.